Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. A lot to discuss today. Uh, we're going to go through what's happening in the economy, talk about this almost billion dollar judgment handed out by a jury against Alex Jones, a $965 million judgment over his commentary on Sandy Hook, on the Sandy Hook school shooting. What does this judgment mean? What does it mean for people like me who are commentating on a variety of issues? You give your opinion. The left isn't happy with your opinion. They sue you. I've been through this. I'll give you the inside look on how these things play out. Uh, I have not been through it in the same fashion as Alex Jones, not in the same way, but I've experienced the lawfare tactic of the left uh, turned against me personally, so uh, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about Kanye West's political uh, commentary or, or rantings as of late and why I am not quite as excited about them as many conservatives and many Republicans that you see out there. And then we've got a report out from Michael Schellenberger about uh, this issue of untreated mental illness in the country and the terrible effects that it's having on America's streets. We've all seen it, the hobos, the bums on the street, uh, terribly mentally ill, getting in fights with people who aren't there. Uh, but sadly, this can result in violence and it has, in so many cases, uh, resulted in violence, people killed, people uh, uh, injured at the hands of people who are untreated mentally ill and unable to be forcefully treated due to laws uh, that have been passed going back several decades, including by the Republican Party's favorite icon, Ronald Reagan. He's the one who really got rid of the mental institutions in California and then kicked off a nationwide trend. So we've got a lot to discuss here, but we begin, of course, in the economy. And and one of the most shocking things to look at in the economy right now, in markets, is what has happened in the bond market. Now, uh, the bond market is something that is closely followed by professionals because it is a market which is much more liquid. It is much deeper. Uh, usually it's much more liquid. Of course, it doesn't apply universally. But it's a much larger market than the stock market. And because bonds are traditionally thought of as being safer, particularly government bonds and other guaranteed securities, securities which guarantee uh, not to default, it is a... Uh, market which uh, can be very highly leveraged. And of course, we saw that in 2008 and all the rest. But this year, the bond market has has taken a bath. It has been an absolute uh, bloodbath in the bond market. The UK gilt is down 52.3%. Uh, and in fact, it's fallen even further since the time that I screenshotted this uh, chart here. Down 52% since December 2021. And what's important about that is an entire uh, decade of gains. So assuming that you bought the UK gilt, you reinvested the coupons, you reinvested the income from that holding uh, back into UK bonds, you have now seen 10 years of your gains, which have been very tremendous gains, by the way, wiped out. And that's another thing about bonds. Everybody sort of had the feeling that bonds were in a bubble because of just how much they had returned versus what they really are. I mean, you think about a U.S. government bond. You buy a 30-year bond uh, beginning in 1980. You reinvest the proceeds from that bond 
uh, over time, and you would have seen a greater return from 1980 to 2018 uh, than you saw, or 2019 even, uh, than you saw in uh, the stock market. <clears throat> so you bought a UK government, or you bought a US government bond, a long bond, a 30-year bond. You reinvested the proceeds every year in more long bonds. You had a higher return than you had in the S&P 500. And you took no risk, by the way. Assuming you never sold or, or anything like that, you took no risk. It's a guaranteed security. Now you could say, well, it could still default. Yes, but by then, worse things have happened. But you think about the, the productivity of the capital that you invested. You invested money uh, into essentially allowing the U.S. government to grow its balance sheet, to grow its activities, to grow its bureaucracy, to grow its foreign misadventures, to grow its military, etc. Versus if you had invested in stocks, you had invested in technology that was created, new drugs that were created, all the things that happened in the private sector, most of them good, some of them bad. And yet you made more money buying bonds. So there was always this feeling that the, the, the bond market was in a bubble, that the government bond market itself was in a bubble. And now you see that playing out. It's not just in the UK, by the way. Similar uh, poor returns in uh, the US long bonds. This is a chart of TLT. TLT is an ETF. It's really quite liquid. It has a, a liquid options market around it. And it basically takes uh, a synthetic 20-year maturity bond. And so the way they do that is if you imagine what it's trying to simulate is if you bought kind of half 10-year bonds and half 30-year uh, bonds, and you called that a 20-year average portfolio. Now, of course, there are other considerations like the, uh, the, the dollar value of a basis point or the DVO1 and uh, the way that duration can play out in a way which is geometric and all the rest. But this essentially is a good way for you to take a position on the longer term part of the curve, say 20-year part of the curve. That's what TLT does. Now, assuming that you had a position in TLT, you reinvested your proceeds, uh, you have lost now all of your gains going back to, uh, just looking at the chart here, I mean, really going back to uh, about 2012, 2011. Again, 10 years of gains wiped out, wiped out. And these are supposed to be the safe assets. Now, of course, assuming that you didn't sell those bonds, you're going to have your principal returned. Your interest will continue to be paid, uh, assuming the U.S. government doesn't default or something. What we are talking about here is mark-to-market losses. So the value of your portfolio today, mark to market, that's what we are that's what we are talking about here. So we are uh, we are going into uh, uh, all of this and 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 it is something in which you know the other part that you have to remember is you look at, say, a, a large investment pool, whether it's a pension fund, whether it's your own assets, et cetera, bonds are often thought of as, you know, especially government bonds as a sort of cash alternative. They say cash or cash alternatives, oftentimes, because uh, basically what you are looking at is something in which people think of it as guaranteed. And so they put their cash in it as a sort of placeholder. Now, generally what they will do is they'll put it into short-term bonds because the liquidity of those is less. The DVO1 is less, as we just talked about. Um, 
the volatility is is less in uh, two-year bonds, say, than 10-year or 30-year bonds. But you talk about major institutions, major pension funds that have huge holdings in these bonds. Oftentimes, those holdings are leveraged. Even a company like Apple, they don't really have $200 billion in cash. They have $200 billion in very short-term paper, short-term government paper. So when you see a huge, massive 50% losses in an asset class that people think of as safe, in an asset class that people use as a replacement for cash, that has implications throughout the portfolio. Maybe they have other holdings now that they have to have forced selling in. I think it's very likely that what you're going to see going into the end of the year is uh, what's known as tax loss selling. Now, what that is, uh, for those of you who don't know, is you have uh, people and, more importantly, institutions that have certain positions that have gone up, okay? And they want to lock those profits in. They want to sell some of the positions, trim them, what have you. But they don't want to pay whatever capital gains tax is associated with the actual sale. In the U.S., at least, and in most places, you don't pay capital gains tax until you sell. And so what they do is they look in other parts of their portfolio for uh, things which have lost the money, and they say, do we really want to keep holding this? Do we want to stick with it? They sell that too. And the loss that they've locked in in that position offsets the gain that they've locked in in another position such that they owe a minimized burden of taxes to, say, the IRS in the case of this country. Some countries like China have virtually no capital gains tax. That's why they're more competitive, Singapore and all of that. In terms of business. Now, oh, and by the way, when a Chinese citizen comes and plays on our stock market, they don't owe capital gains tax. They're tax exempt in that respect. You tell me how that makes any sense, and, and uh, I'll be very happy to, uh, to give you a lot of admiration, but I, I haven't found anyone who has told me exactly how that makes any sense. So Chinese are treated better than Americans when it comes to trading the American stock market, just so you know, as are other foreigners. Uh, but in any event, the tax loss selling that happens this time of year going into the end of the year can move the market lower in certain areas. I think that will be the case this year. Now, one thing that will send a bond market lower, uh, whatever bond market it happens to be, is inflation. And it makes sense intuitively when you think about it, because if you are a lender and you've made a loan, you have, you have loaned out today's dollars, okay? And if you are then paid back in the future, you're paid back with, let's call it, tomorrow's dollars. Now, if tomorrow's dollars are worth less than today's dollars, then that loan you made has now decreased in value. You know, let's say that you're the person who issues a mortgage. It's a $200,000 mortgage. You get, let's say, 6% interest based on it, uh, to, for the for the service of loaning out that money, you get paid 6%. Well, if 20 years from now, people are paying you back in dollars that are worth 30% less than they were when you issued the loan, the little 6% interest you get doesn't do you any good. That's a bad deal from where you sit. Now, the utility of the money was nice. It moved through the economy. It got a transaction done, all of that. But it's not good from the position of a lender or the position of the person who holds that debt once it's securitized and turned into a bond, a mortgage-backed security, what have you. And so when inflation goes up, traditionally, the value of bonds goes down. Okay, that is 
what has a lot to do with some of these losses in the bond market. Now, we have uh, new inflation uh, marks out today, and these inflation marks are uh, really uh, quite telling. I mean, we look at some of these uh, numbers that are out. Uh, airline fares, up 43%. Gas utility, up 33% uh, from a year ago. Eggs, 30%. Gasoline, 18%. Chicken, 17%. Coffee, 16%. 15.7%. Milk, 15%. Bread, 15%. I'm rounding here to the nearest whole number. Uh, furniture, 10%. Vegetables, 9 all items, eight, uh, fruit, eight, ham, eight, women's apparel, eight, used cars, seven, rent, uh, seven, uh, men's apparel, four. So the used car number, by the way, too, is kind of deceiving because there were no new cars that you could even buy. The used cars earlier this year, and I talked about this on the Sensor TV program, uh, were up 40% in some cases. I, I remember seeing... Um, 2015, uh, say, Suburbans that had 150,000 miles selling for $75,000. It made no sense at all. I mean, it was just nuts. That's come back down a bit now, but that's what was going on early in the year. Now, the rise in interest rates has, has hurt home affordability. Here's an example here. Uh, two years ago, on the dot, 30-year mortgage rate was 2.87%, and average new home price in the U.S. was $395,000. Today, 30-year mortgage rate is 6.92%, and average new home price is $522,000. Result of that is that you have a $25,000 increase in down payment, assuming 20% down. So if you had this idea that you were going to save up for a down payment on a home, well, Good luck, because as you were saving, the value of your money was going down and the value of the homes were going up, and now you need 25000 more uh, than you thought you needed. And you have a 110% increase in monthly payment from 1310 to 2755 I mean, just, just remarkable, a remarkable decrease in home affordability, both because of interest rates and because of the increase in the value of homes. Now, that increase in the value of homes has come down a bit from earlier this year. Prices are being decreased on homes now. The market's trying to get its footing on what fair value is in real estate still. Uh, we will see where that actually shakes out. I mean, you see some new construction homes still trying to get what they were trying to get a year ago or six months ago or nine months ago. And you see some people who are coming to terms with it and they're doing 35% price decreases on, on homes that were on the market. I see somebody in the chat here. It says, why doesn't deflation promote loan and credit if tomorrow's dollars will be worth more? Uh, well, it does. I mean, deflation uh, does promote that. But the other part about deflation is that deflation generally results in an overall decrease in consumption. Because people say, why would I buy it today when it's going to be cheaper tomorrow? And so what that does is it makes people less confident in the bond market, say, or other markets, but for other reasons, because they say, well, if this deflation trend continues, then what you're going to have is people not buying things. And so if they don't buy things, then it doesn't play through to sales. 
companies don't stay in business, jobs are lost, and then they don't pay the bonds, so the default risk goes up. So deflation uh, causes other lacks of confidence in markets for other reasons. Uh, roundabout here, just talking about this latest uh, CPI report. So looking at September inflation versus August inflation, you have a lower year-over-year increase on uh, fuel oil, gasoline, electricity, food at home, new cars, and used cars. You have a higher increase, however, in uh, gas utilities, transportation, food away from home, shelter, meaning housing, uh, medical care, and apparel. That's what you have taking place in the markets today. It is an interesting picture. Uh, somebody writes here in the chat, uh, Granita. Uh, writes, uh, my 16-year-old daughter is trying to save for a car on a $13 an hour part-time job. I told her to just forget it. Anyone who doesn't have a car right now probably won't ever have one. Well, yeah, and I mean, things change, right? And so what's going to happen is that, you know, her income will move up with the prices of assets. So I don't know. I think she'll have a car at some point, but it is a, a daunting task. It's a very daunting task indeed. Uh, no question about that. So I uh, want to talk about this Alex Jones situation. Of course, most of you have seen the headline already. Uh, Alex Jones ordered to pay a $965 million fine in this case. Now, what I found most interesting about this, looking at uh, Alex Jones's response, is uh, I guess this is what Alex Jones says: something like four hundred million dollars in legal fees are being claimed by the lawyers in the case. I mean, that's remarkable. You think about it from the standpoint of the lawyers, and it's like generally a case like this, they would put in the pro bono category, for one thing. Uh, they're looking to virtue signal. They're looking to be patted on the back. They're looking to uh, receive awards from various bar associations, and so. Usually they would do the case for free. So for them to say they have $400 million in legal fees, if in fact that is true, it's like, well, now they lose the right to virtue signal in the same way. And they have to know they aren't going to collect $965 million, $400 million to which would go to them. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Alex Jones says in uh, his response also that he says that he has about a million and a half dollars in the bank that the companies have about a million dollars, uh, barely enough to meet payroll. That's what uh, Alex Jones has said. But, you know, I think what is making the rounds most of all is just the amounts in this. So even if you go along with the idea that this is a terrible thing that Alex Jones did, uh, that his misreporting caused all of these material harms and the like, well, then you have to look at some comparable uh, situations that, that you, you would also agree are harmful. And I think one of the more shocking ones is the case of Purdue Pharma. Now, Purdue Pharma, of course, are the inventors of OxyContin. Uh, they were basically the uh, scapegoat for the entire opioid epidemic. I have said for a long time, I've seen the DEA data. I have said that the opioid epidemic, well, uh, certainly the overprescription of things like OxyContin didn't help the situation. It hurt the situation. It is not ascribable to pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, people will point to the OxyContin situation. They make movies about it. They make TV shows about it. They make cases about it. And they say, go after them because they'll pay a fine if we issue one. I mean, you can't issue a fine to the drug cartels. 
they're not going to pay a fine. So you go after Purdue Pharma, you issue them a fine for all of their various wrongdoing in the situation. And let's just say that's all true. But what I also know is there was never enough OxyContin prescribed to uh, create the number of opioid uh, addicts that we have. There just wasn't. There was never, ever, ever enough pills ever made of that drug or these other uh, pharmaceutical opioids to create the opioid so-called epidemic that we have. And in fact, what it appears to me to be the case of what caused it is the fact that following the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the production of opium from Afghanistan went up massively. In fact, you saw 40% year-over-year increases in opium production every year that the United States was present in Afghanistan. And now, uh, in the last year that the U.S. was there, uh, the Taliban and other groups in Afghanistan have also gotten into the business of producing crystal meth. They figure if you can build a super lab in Mexico, you can probably build one here. And I understand that that crystal meth is being mostly supplied to Europe, not the United States, but it does make its way to the U.S. as well. And in my view... Uh, the real fault of the uh, opioid epidemic falls on the fact that there was a lot more cheap heroin out there than existed ever before, uh, namely out of Afghanistan. But anyway, that's a different topic. But the bottom line is that Purdue Pharma, the scapegoat for all of this, they did this huge case against them, and they finally found that uh, Purdue Pharma needed to pay $634.5 million as a total fine. You know, basically, they, they rested the blame for the entire opioid situation at the feet of Purdue Pharma, and they charged them a fine of $634.5 million. This is a combination of uh, state AGs that brought that case. There's federal involvement as well. That's what happened in that matter. So what you're saying is that Alex Jones's claims on his online network, which also used to have a lot of presence on AM radio, uh, caused more damage than Purdue Pharma caused in the economy. Uh, this fine is also larger than the highest fine paid by any participant in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, the executive who was fined the most in all of that paid $65 million, a, a whole $900 million less than Alex Jones has been ordered to pay here. And again, it's all a moot point because he doesn't have, I mean, even in the most wild arguments in which they say he's worth uh, $70, $80 million, he's not in a position to pay $900 million. So it's it's all uh, a big signal. It, it all is something which, which makes no difference anyway. It's just a piece of paper as far as anyone's really concerned. And, and what it brings to the fore, again, you know, for me, and maybe I think about these things differently than, than some other people do, but what I think about is, uh, what do we have as far as a jury system? The, the idea of the jury system descending out of British common law, a jury of your peers, has to be white, uh, landowning men on a jury. And why was that? People say, why did, why did only they be, why were only they put on juries? Well, the reason they were put on juries is because if something was such a massive situation as to be brought before court in those days, rather than handled with vigilante justice, probably the, the, person being brought before the court as a defendant is somebody who was a white landowning male. Uh, they could afford counsel, they would be involved in affairs large enough to bring to a court, and so the idea was 
It should be somebody like them or people like them who issue the judgment. Obviously, today we have expanded the definition of who should be serving on juries, who should be voting, uh, who should be involved in uh, civic life in general in this country. I say we, but it's it's not me. It's people who came well before I was born who decided this and, uh, and, and really uh, imbued it into further amendments in our Constitution in the United States. And it came as, as that expansion also took place around the world. But what does it mean? What does that actually tell us? How do we get these crazy outcomes on juries that we see so often? What is the jury system really worth anymore? Is it sacred? I don't think. I mean, what we have left of a jury system here is 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 something. Is it sacred? I mean, in certain senses, it's sacred. In certain senses, you don't want juries to be subject, obviously, to corrupt influence. To that degree, it's sacred. You don't want juries to be tampered with. Certainly, that is sacred. You don't want juries to be uh, something which people have total doubt in. So I guess to that degree, it's sacred. To the degree that you want a jury to function the way it was originally designed to function, yes, it is sacred. But is the is the functioning of juries in this day and age, the way that we see it take place all across the country, by the way, with criticism coming from both right and left, from black and white, from men and women, is the actual way in which juries can or cannot be relied upon in this day and age to issue fair verdicts, is that something we should hold sacred? Because the way that juries seem to be working in this day and age is something that I don't know we would put on a mantle as sacred alongside our Bibles, alongside our Torahs, alongside our family photos as being sacred. Instead, what seems to be the case is that the jury system itself has disintegrated. It has dissolved. It has really eroded into something that resembles uh, direct democracy, let's say, in a third world country or something like that. I mean, is democracy sacred? Well, what democracy are you talking about exactly? I mean, certainly the democracy of uh, those who live in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine voting to become part of Russia as people go door to door and collect those ballots, well, that's not uh, sacred in the eyes of the U.S. press, in the eyes of the mainstream media, of the U.S. intelligence community, of the uh, global intelligentsia, the global Western intelligentsia. Well, that kind of democracy is not sacred. Uh, the votes that take place in a place like Swaziland, in a place like uh, in a place like Liberia, well, those aren't exactly recognized as sacred because everyone knows that they're totally unreliable. But for some reason, we now have a situation in which we still hold juries sacred, but the results that juries seem to be producing by any objective measure seem to be far from reliable. And so it is something in which this case demonstrates that, I mean, what has a jury done here? They've issued a record verdict. Uh, that verdict is very likely to be overturned on appeal. It's a verdict which the uh, defendant in the case cannot possibly pay. So what good have they really even done the 
the the plaintiffs in the case, nobody knows. I think the plaintiffs actually asked for something like $8 billion, by the way, in, in the verdict. So it's really something. Now, I want to go here to uh, the story of Kanye West. Of course, everyone has seen uh, you know, these situations out of uh, Kanye, where he comments on politics, he does so in a way which is unhinged. He's uh, accused of being by many anti-Semitic as he starts mentioning Jews and the like. But what I want to focus on here today is not trying to parse out Kanye's very cryptic remarks and whether each of them are correct or incorrect or what have you. Everybody's got their opinions on that. I don't expect to be able to change them. But what I do want to discuss here is what is the actual impact of Kanye West coming out and getting into the world of politics? And it seems to me that the impact is one which is not exactly what people uh, en masse, particularly on the right, uh, think it is. Now, there, there was this idea that Kanye West getting involved in politics was going to be great. Trump invited him to the White House along with Kim Kardashian. At the request of Kim Kardashian, Trump started developing the First Step Act, uh, released tens of thousands of violent felons from federal prison, uh, many of whom reoffended. offended uh, The recidivism rate already at something like 25 or 30 percent, depending on the category that you look at as far as offenses in the first place and afterwards. And so it is really uh, a situation that, you know, Republicans have embraced. They've embraced Kanye West's involvement in the political discourse. Nobody questions his right to be involved, certainly, but what is the utility of it? Well, Republicans think what he was going to do is turn out the black vote. That's why they did all of these measures where Trump invited the rappers on stage. He even pardoned the rappers at the end. Uh, he passed the First Step Act. He gave uh, record long-term funding to historically black colleges and universities. And the effect of all of that, as far as anyone can measure, is that it increased black turnout. And what we know is that uh, blacks are a group in the United States who vote for the Democrat Party in numbers that are uh, more reliable, robust, and favored in terms of Democrats than any other group. What they do is that they vote something like 90% for whoever the person with the D next to their name is, whether they're white, black, Jewish, Hispanic, or any other thing. They vote Democrat. That is what black voters do in the United States of America reliably. But the thought was, well, maybe if we roll out the red carpet to the black vote like has never been done before by Republicans— and we use celebrities like Kanye West, that the effect of that will be that we'll flip the black vote, will increase uh, black turnout for Republicans or something like that. Well, what we've seen is increase the black turnout. That part of the sentence was true. They did increase the black turnout measurably as far as all the surveys and the data that I have looked at. Uh, but the black turnout did not move towards Republicans at all. In fact, it seemed to be just a tad bit lower than it was before for all of that. So it seems that the unlikely black voter was somebody who was even more likely to vote Democrat than the likely black voter. So all of this, all of this uh, uh, lobbying for the black vote, all of this uh, rolling out of the red carpet, all of this embrace of Kanye West and others who are black celebrities, you know, the, the, the pardoning of uh, long dead black boxers like Joe Johnson that uh, Trump did, all of this stuff, actually seem to increase the black vote and, in the process, help Democrats. That's what it seemed to do. If you look at this from a partisan standpoint, from a political standpoint, all of this, all of this seemed to really solidly help Democrats. And so 
when I see election day getting really close, election day is getting close. And, you know, all of a sudden, Kanye West has some thoughts about politics. All of a sudden, Kanye West has got some things to say about politics. And, and Tucker Carlson is more than happy to offer him a platform. And I don't blame Tucker Carlson. I mean, it's a big interview. It's a big get, and you, you do it. But I'm just saying, what exactly are these people hoping to achieve? What exactly are Republicans hoping to achieve by propping up Kanye West and his uh, less than intelligible commentary on politics. What exactly is the hope here? And what I would posit is that all they're going to end up doing is increasing black turnout to some degree, to whatever degree it can be increased in midterms. And all that will do is hurt Republicans at the ballot box. So, you know, I hope Republicans are enjoying this. I hope that they're having fun with it and that, you know, the celebrity contact and the Hollywood contact, which has become ever so rare for them, is something which they enjoy and they can do their movie premieres and they can have a big time rapper there. And, you know, oh, we'll, we'll uh, equivocate on what he meant about Jew this and Jew that and what, I, you know, fine. I don't care about the actual, uh, I'm not offended by it. Nobody is. They pretend to be. Some people pretend to be. Some people don't. Fine. All I'm saying here is if you're if you what you do for a living is politics, as would be clearly the case with somebody like Kanye West and clearly the case with somebody like Tucker Carlson. And you are somebody who holds yourself out to be a Republican uh, in that profession, then perhaps what you should do is think a little bit more deeply about what the political impacts are going to be in a, a very fast approaching election before you embark on uh, such an enterprise. That's all. And and I think that's something that these people have not really done. And uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So it is something that, that I find really, you know, something. So um, we go here now. It, this person says the number went from 9% to 14% blacks voting for Democrats. So yeah, it, it didn't help. Nothing the Republicans did helped them politically. You know, Forgetting for a moment the merit or lack thereof of what they did, it seems more that it's in the lack thereof category as of now. But I want to talk about this uh, Michael Schellenberger article on his Substack. He's become increasingly a very uh, prominent writer. Uh, he is comes from the Democrat side of the aisle originally. Wrote a book called Apocalypse Never about the climate catastrophic thinking that people engage in. And he's got a piece out now uh, titled Dark Side of Destigmatization. No human being should be stigmatized, but untreated mental illness and addiction and are dangerous and destructive and should be. Well, obviously that's the case. It's so crazy that we have to have people who are this smart, you know, spend their valuable time and their valuable brain cells writing entire articles to justify things that seem so obvious today. But nonetheless, they do. And Schellenberger writes here, It is time to end all forms of stigma and discrimination against people with mental health conditions, editorialized the prestigious British medical journal Lancet yesterday. The editorial accompanied a special 43-page report by 50 co-authors on ending stigma and discrimination against people with Lived Experience of Mental Health Conditions, P-W-L-E. 
they don't want to call them mentally ill people. Just like they don't want to call them homeless people. They call them people experiencing homelessness. It's very strange. Uh, the editorial accompanied a, a special 43-page report, um, uh, which it called the, the stigmatization worse than the condition itself. Uh, the special report concludes that, quote, our single simple key message is the following. Mental health is part of being human. Let us act now to stop stigma and start inclusion. Okay, that was what they basically had to say. In truth, efforts to avoid stigma and discrimination against mentally ill people have been going on for decades, including in the criminal justice system, where judges routinely consider the mental health of criminal suspects. He writes, consider the following cases. In 2017, a Chicago judge ruled that uh, John Westbrooks was not guilty for reasons of insanity after attacking two 55-year-old women with a hammer and ordered him hospitalized until 2021 when he was released. In 2019, a Montgomery County court in Maryland, uh, just outside of D.C., bordering D.C., dismissed several trespassing cases against Elias Aragonge, it looks like a uh, perhaps a Nigerian name, a mentally ill 24-year-old man, and put him on probation. And in March of this year, a judge in southwestern Washington released John Cody Hart on supervised release, despite the stigmatizing, discriminatory appeal of the local prosecutor, who said the community does not need somebody suffering from untreated mental illness out committing unprovoked serious violent offenses. But in each of the above cases, what happened next challenges Lancet's contention that stigma and discrimination are worse than the condition itself. So what happened? Well, uh, in early September last year, not long after being released from a psychiatric hospital, Westbrooks walked into a Chase bank and stabbed uh, Jessica Villaitong, uh, a 24, a bank teller, as she spoke with customers. Then Westbrooks ran outside and waved his bloody knife while screaming at passersby. Jesus, criminy. Whoa. In late August 2019, uh, Elias uh, Aragonge, the uh, Nigerian man, it sounds like, ran up to uh, Marjorie McGill, 27, a paid dog walker, and stabbed her in the stomach, neck, and back. Detectives followed a trail of blood, from her body to an apartment a quarter mile away where Aragonge was watching TV. Last Saturday, John Cody Hart shot Rory and Sarah Mahen, two 40-something innkeepers at point-blank range after they confronted him stealing from other guests. Hart told detectives that he felt humiliated by the Mahens and heard the voice of Pope Gregory and John Paul say to him, are you going to let Bonnie and Clyde do that to our family. So you can see in each of these cases, you have judges, uh, presumably left-wing judges, probably left-wing female judges, if I know anything about these courts, and it does look like that was the case in, in most of these cases, uh, let these people out, following the advice of, say, the Lancet, saying that uh, you can't stigmatize these people. If you stigmatize them, they won't get treatment. It'll make the problem worse. They follow that advice, and it leads to people being brutally stabbed, uh, shot, uh, butchered, killed. And those are just three cases. There are many such cases beyond that, really too many to count in this country. And nobody seems to do anything about it. It gets to the point where 
you know, these people are out there. People call the cops a hundred times. They're back out there screaming incoherent nonsense the next day. And so people give up and they just stop bothering to call the cops and then somebody gets killed. I mean, remember in the first case, the guy was arrested after attacking two uh, 55-year-old women with a hammer. It's not like the, what he was doing to begin with was uh, a totally benign, maybe annoying, but benign. No, what he did initially was already so violent. But she says, no, it's fine, you know, uh, not guilty, and off you go, and then somebody's uh, killed. It is just unreal. And, and the numbers are shocking in terms of this. I mean, uh, major mental illness and substance abuse, 64% of those people uh, will engage in violence uh, of this kind uh, over the course of their life. A schizophrenia and major Affective disorder, uh, 33% of those people will engage in, uh, you know, uh, some kind of violence. Substance abuse without mental illness is still at a very high 55% versus kind of the baseline of something like 15, given all the same uh, socioeconomic factors, etc. It's really stark. The statistics are very stark here. And we all see it. I mean, anytime you step into a city or, or even more and more outside of cities, you see this kind of craziness taking place. Uh, and nobody can do anything about it. The judges don't do anything about it. The cops just stop bothering with it because they don't need to get, you know, uh, mixed up with somebody and, 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 and potentially end up uh, tossed in jail themselves. So they, st- they give up and, and you have this this total apathy around this issue to where uh, you end up with this major problem and, and innocent people killed. Uh, nobody doubts the prevalence of violence among the mentally ill. The 96% number is deeply misleading, and America's addiction crisis doesn't diminish the risk of violence. It increases it. Okay, so they, there was some false number that 96% are nonviolent, this side or the other. Uh, He writes here, such may have been the case with John Cody Hart, a transient army veteran. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and and marijuana use disorder after killing a man in 2021. Indeed, a photo on his Instagram shows him smoking a blunt. On August 9, 2021, Hart jumped a man, put him in a vascular neck restraint, and pressed his thumbs into the man's eyes uh, uh, such that he will likely remain blind for life. The murders by Hart, Arogny, Westbrooks undermine the central contention of Lancet stigma and discrimination against the mentally ill, that are that this is worse than the condition itself. Murder is worse than the condition itself, uh, he writes here. So again, it's, it's this big, you know, soft approach to this kind of problem, and it's causing people to be killed. You have to be very careful now. You know, you have to be in a situation now where if you see a, a bum on the street, you need to be paying close attention to their hands, okay? You need to be keeping your distance, okay? Somebody can move 20 feet inside of three seconds with a knife and kill you. Inside of three seconds, if they decide. Any able-bodied person. So 20 feet is kind of only giving yourself three seconds warning, just FYI. You need to be watching hands. You need to be reading body language. Somebody's acting a little bit nuts. One of the things you might look for is is elevated elbows. So you know what a neutral position is, you know, elbows hanging down, or are their elbows a little elevated? That could be a 
a, a warning that what's going to happen next is they're going to reach for something in their pockets and their waistband, etc. Police officers who are well-trained know this. And more and more, as just average citizens, you have to be, know this as well. Just walking around town because there are these violent people out there and the political class can't be relied upon to help you. And so all I can recommend at this point is that you help yourself. You know, stay out of the areas where these people propagate as best you can. Stay away from them. Keep your distance. And, uh, you know, recognize that they can turn violent without any, any ability for you to predict that. You know, as happened in the case with these innkeepers. The Pope starts speaking to this guy in his schizophrenic delusions, and so he kills you. Something like that. I mean, it's, it's something you can't predict, and so all you can do is be on alert and, uh, and, and try to reduce your risk. That's all I can recommend. I'm not going to tell you to you know, sit here and, and respond to some GOP spam email and that suddenly if you do that, this problem is going to be fixed because even if that does move us uh, closer to fixing this, if we get Republicans in the House and Senate, it's not going to happen quickly. So what I'm telling you to do is to take serious precautions when it comes to all this. Uh, Main uh, writes here in the chat, downtown anywhere is dangerous. That is true more and more, just about any city. Um, uh, Somebody says, oh, snap, Jacob's on YouTube. Yes. Uh, Go to the gym, not a therapist. Well, that's what Mark says here. I'm just looking through the chats here for any final questions uh, before we wrap up the show. It's been wonderful to have all of you again. Mark says, our republic will fail just as they all do. Perhaps we still have a golden age ahead, like Rome. We will become an empire, perhaps. What do you think about J.P. Morgan dumping Kanye? You know, I don't know all the details of this yet, but I know that J.P. Morgan Chase is one of the worst. Uh, They banned me and Laura Loomer and a number of other political people from having accounts on the same day back in, it was either 2018 or maybe early 2019. I think it was 2018. They banned us all same day. We all got the letter same day. Uh, They banned us. So, you know, expressing right-wing views is a good way to be banned from Chase. It's just uh, unbelievable. So anyway, guys, uh, thanks so much for watching. We're going to be back here on Monday. Uh, We never know what the news cycle will bring these days out of Ukraine, out of... Uh, the political cycle taking place. Anything could happen, really. It's uh, I never know what I'm going to be bringing you on Monday. Uh, the weekends have been full of news lately. I appreciate all the support with the show. Of course, you can support on Cash App at Real Jacob Wool. You can go to jacobwool.org slash podcast and sign up for a recurring donation. Uh, and that's always nice as well. Keeps the show going. But most of all, share the links. Uh, get it out there with your friends and uh Tune in next Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern time to The Jacob Wall Show right here on YouTube and on podcast apps everywhere shortly after. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you on Monday at 2 p.m.